Doug, morning church. Would you um, grab a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14. That's uh, where we are this morning in our journey through the book of Mark. We are uh, continuing in it since time. Uh, we planned it that we're going to end it over that weekend. And it's going to just be a great um, sort of not only conclusion of a journey, but a great celebration of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection for us. This uh, we've come to a place in the story where Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And it's also simultaneously what we call the Lord's Supper. And uh, you may have seen this painting up here by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, we can't really see it that well here, but you'll know it. This is uh, the Lord's Supper, his painting. And um, while it's a great painting, it's all wrong. Because <laughs> they would have been uh, around the table, not just on on one side, and they would have actually been lying down, resting on their elbows. That's how they ate. And this is the moment we're entering into right here before us. Uh, I don't know if you've ever answered the question or even thought about it. Maybe you haven't. But um, what would your death row meal be? You know, this death row meal in some countries where people are about to be uh, criminals, are about to meet their death, they get given this gift their last meal would be. Uh, I'd probably go steak and potatoes. You might want to perhaps go with your favorite banting option. I don't know. But um, Jesus, this morning, right here as we read this passage, is eating his death row meal. This is his last meal he would eat before he uh, dies. And right in the midst of this meal that he's having with his disciples, he drops a truth bomb. And he says that one of them, one of his disciples, is trusted to one of them is going to betray him, and he's going to suffer and die like a criminal. And uh, where we're at in this book of Mark at the moment is we are heading into some dark days. These are the final days of Jesus' uh, life in, in, the, in the flesh. And um, Lenka preached last week on the lady who brought a bottle of perfume to Jesus as a gift of worship, and Jesus actually uses it to say She's not only worshiping me, she's actually also preparing my body for burial. And so that theme in these chapters 14, chapter 14 and 15 is now starting. Jesus has started his journey to the cross. And uh, it'll, it won't be long before he is not only crucified, but also led to the tomb. And thank the Lord, we know how the story ends. And this is what we're looking at over Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we look at this important, crucial weekend, Jesus making some promises, even today, of what his death would accomplish for us. And so we're answering these questions. Did, did Jesus really die? What, what did his death accomplish? Did he really rise like he said he would? And so this morning, if you're a note-taker, this is sort of the big question we're looking at, is that before Jesus dies, before he's even arrested, he's making some promises to us today of what the shedding of his blood would accomplish for us. What does the shedding of Jesus' blood accomplish for us? That's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to be building uh, throughout. We've, we've got three uh, sort of headings this morning, and we're going to just be working through the text. The first is the feast, the second is the betrayal, and the third is the new covenant. And um, we are in Mark 14, verses 12 to 26. And I'm, I'm not going to do the usual thing of reading the whole thing and then preaching it. I'm going to just be reading a section, preaching on it, reading the next section, preaching on it, reading the next section, and so on. So we're going to kick off 
Mark chapter 14 from verse 12, looking at the feast. As I said, there is a nationwide feast taking place. And let's read together from verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Uh, some of you might know the story of what the Passover is about, but I'm just going to give us sort of the highlights of the story because it's really important for us uh, this morning is that what the Jews would do in this uh, a feast of unleavened bread, it would sort of be a week-long celebration and sort of the climax of that would be the Passover, like a one-day climax of this whole feast. And it's a remembrance of what God did for his people, Israelites, thousands of years ago in Egypt. And uh, when God's people were slaves in Egypt, they were um, being used to build cities and the conditions were harsh and terrible and they were dying and they were being mistreated. And this obviously broke God's heart. So what he did as his people continued to cry out to him is God decided to raise up a leader in a man called Moses. And you can read this whole story in the book of Exodus. And what Moses does is, as he, as he prays and seeks God, God speaks to him and tells him what to do. And so Moses goes to the Pharaoh of Egypt, which is like the king of Egypt. And he says, well, God says that you must let my people go. You must let the Israelites go. Set them free from slavery. And of course, the thing with slavery is that it's a great economic uh, backbone of a society. And so Pharaoh, in his greed, doesn't want to do that. And he doesn't let them go. And uh, this goes on for some time. Moses pleading with Pharaoh and Pharaoh digging his heels in and, and saying no. And so God eventually uh, decides to send several um, plagues to the land as a warning to Pharaoh that he has to let his people go. And so God sort of carpet bombs the country with frogs and boils and locusts and so many other things. And just... We can just see the unbelievable patience of God here. Ten separate plagues. He's, he's slow to anger, this, this God, but he will also not be mocked. And so God takes this thing to the next level. After persistent refusal to let his people go, Moses, uh, God speaks to Moses and says, he must go to Pharaoh and say this. This is the final warning. After ten separate warnings and continued refusal, God will not be mocked. He goes to uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, this is what's going to happen now if you don't let my people go. The firstborn of every house will die. That will be the final warning. And Pharaoh again, he says no. So, so God speaks to Moses and he gives him a message for the Israelites. And he says, this is what you must do to make sure that you are protected. So that you aren't affected by this death of the firstborn of every um, of every household when the angel of death comes. He says, you must take the, a lamb, a spotless lamb, and slaughter the lamb and take its blood 
and paint it over the doorposts of your house and then go into the house and stay there. Stay there for the night because this uh, death is coming. And surely enough, it does come. And in the morning, as, as he said it, the grim reaper, as it were, passes over the nation and the firstborn of every household in the, for the Egyptians dies, even Pharaoh's own son. But, but the Israelites are kept safe simply because of the blood of the lamb on the door. And so when every plague previously, Pharaoh had dug his heels in, and he said, no, I will not let my people go. Now, only now, he is a broken man. And he relents. And he says, okay, just leave, leave. This has brought too much grief on my own household, on, on, my, on my nation. Just leave, get out of here. And <clears throat> that's the story of the exodus, of, of God's people leaving uh, Egypt and making their way to the promised land. And uh, this is a crucial moment in the story of of, of the Israelite people, of God's people. So back to our text today, uh, this meal of the Passover is something that the Jews um, remember. They did yearly from then even until today as they look back to this um, story of God's deliverance in Egypt, how God delivered them from slavery. And they have uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the sort of bread they would eat on their journey out of um, out of Egypt, they, they eat it to remember the journey. And then they have Passover to remember so the blood of the lamb given to cover them and to, to protect them from death. Now here's the important bit. is that Christians see this story very differently. We see this ultimately as a story that points to Jesus. That this Passover in Israel is an ultimately, it's, it's a pointer and a picture of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Just as the blood of the lamb protected them from death and set them free, so the blood of our lamb, Jesus, has protect, protects us from death and sets us free. And so this is why um, this moment is so important to Jesus, is that he, he celebrates this feast with his uh, disciples. He doesn't abandon tradition, but he's saying this is so much more than just a tradition. This is so much more than just a ritual. Uh, this, this moment, this Passover, is actually talking about me. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is why that phrase, one of the things Jesus gets called in the Bible, uh, even in the book of Mark, is the Lamb of God. It's talking about how Jesus is the ultimate Lamb of God. And so, even at the beginning of our book of Mark, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. This is our Lamb. And so, this meal here, this morning, that Jesus is um, putting together for his disciples is so important. Jesus puts in the, the text even kind of gives us some clues. Jesus really, really, really wants this meal to take place because he wants to teach them these truths about who he is. You see, Jesus is intentional about even setting it up. He says, go into the town, you'll find this guy, that's the sign, follow him, go to that house, you'll find the master of that house who's already set up the gig for you upstairs. That's not some kind of prophetic thing, which, although it could be, I mean, this is Jesus, but I think what actually is more likely is that this is a premeditated plan that Jesus has put together. He's met with the, the guy, the master of the house. He's told them what to do, how to set up the room. He's even set up the point person, this sort of code of this guy with the water jar, who 
who his disciples are going to meet. Jesus has, has put the plans together to celebrate this meal. And so the obvious question is then, why would he do that? Why does this meal matter so much to Jesus? Of course, we've just said it, is that Jesus wants to help his disciples and us this morning to see that it's ultimately about him. He is the ultimate Passover lamb who's covered us from death and whose blood delivers us and rescues us. It's all about his blood. I just want to encourage us this morning, and this is the thing about the blood of Jesus. And we're going to, we're going to circle back to this a few times today, but the blood of Jesus is just so pervasive over your life. And just as a sort of illustration, let's think back to the, the, the story of Egypt and the original Passover. And just how scandalous this is. Just think about how scandalous this is. The, the blood of the lamb was painted over the doorposts, and as, as I've just said, the, the firstborn of the Egyptians' household uh, died, whereas the Israelites are kept safe. Let's just talk about some of the implications of that. That would mean that even though the Egyptians, some of the Egyptians who died would have been much better people than the Israelites who were saved. Or put it another way, the Israelites, uh, the evil Israelites, received the same privileges as the godly ones. Why? Just because the blood of the lamb is, is the thing that made all the difference. See, friends, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are, as, as beautiful as Douglas is. Yeah, true story. The blood of the lamb is what makes all the difference. So maybe I can illustrate it this way. Um, imagine someone wants to fly into South Africa and to get past customs, to get into the country. They need the right passport documentation, right? If they don't have that, they don't get in. It's not one of the requirements the government may consider. It's the only one. You have to have the right passport documentation. Right? It doesn't, you're not going to get in because you, you can soak it. You're not going to get in because you can speak Zulu. You're not going to get in because you can do a lacquer bride. You're not going to get in because you can imitate a South African. You're going to get in if you have the right requirements. That's what salvation is about. The blood of Jesus isn't one of the, the considerations God thinks about when he considers who to save. It's, it's the only one. It's the only one. We have to have the right symbol of membership. So the question this morning for us is that, do you believe this? Do you know it's not about how good you are, or how clever you are, or how kind you are, or how nice you are? Are you covered in the blood of Jesus? Are you covered by his blood? Do you trust his blood to accomplish for you salvation in this great rescue plan of God? As we put ourselves in the shoes of this story once again, You'd think, after spending three years with Jesus right there, that all of the disciples are starting to know and see who this guy is and trust in him. Do they believe this? Do we believe this? And I, I think that that's what the next section we're looking at is speaking into. Let's look at the betrayal from verse 17. When, they, when evening came, he arrived with the twelve. 
And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. These are some serious words of Jesus. And the great uh, theologian, Archbishop Robin Williams, uh, he tells a a joke about this. I don't want to make light of it, but it sort of illustrates the point here. Is that they're sitting around having... Uh, this meal together, and John, John says, is it, is it me, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, it's not you, John. And uh, Peter says, is it, is it me, Jesus? And Peter says, no, it's not you, Peter. And Judas says, is it me, Jesus? And Jesus looks at him and says, is it me, Jesus? <laughs> See, Jesus knows what's going on. This is not a surprise to him, and so we might want to ask ourselves this morning, why does he even speak about this betrayal? Why does he mention it? I mean, if he knows it's going to happen, why is he even talking about it? And I would say there's two reasons. The first reason is this, is that Jesus is predicting his death. His death is not a surprise to him. His arrest is not a surprise to him. He knows what's coming, and he knows that his death is essential to the rescue plan. His death is, and, and his arrest is not a disruption to the plan. It is the plan. I think a lot of people these days sort of think about Jesus uh, as a man and, and they see him being killed and, and they sort of say, oh, shame, you know, gone too soon. Uh, a life well lived, it's an, it made an unfortunate end. But that would be to completely misunderstand the purpose and the plan of Jesus. The purpose of his life in many ways, was his death. It's his death that Jesus has come to be our rescue as he's died for our sin in our place. And so when he's predicting his death here, he wants his disciples to know that what's coming, my friends, is not a mistake. It's not a, a bad plan. It's not a disruption to the plan. It's not something that's happening against my will. It is my will. I'm not being murdered. I'm choosing to die. This is the plan. Jesus even says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. This was the plan. And so he he wants them to know that this is part of what's happening. He knows the betrayal is coming, but he doesn't want them to think that it's a mistake. He wants them to know this was his plan. Another obvious reason Jesus speaks about the betrayal, and I think the more important reason, or at least one of the very important reasons here, is that he knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows the heart of Judas. He's not surprised by what's coming his way, but I think what's so incredible is just to recognize in this moment the incredible anguish and pain of Jesus' heart. I mean, you might know the pain of betrayal. You might know what that feels like. Jesus is 
in this moment, he says, it would be better if he was never born. That's, that's a cry of someone in deep pain and agony as one of his closest friends, who, someone who was supposed to be one of his closest allies, who he's put his trust in so much, is now betraying him. And yet in the midst of all this, Jesus is showing Judas incredible kindness and grace. Just think about this Judas, this Judas who was going to betray Jesus, this Judas who had spent three years close to Jesus and yet doesn't believe in him. This Judas who never once actually in the Gospels called Jesus Lord, only ever um, spoke of him and to him as teacher or rabbi. This Judas who, who didn't recognize in our last passage of, of this amazing gift of perfume from this woman to Jesus. He didn't recognize it as worship, but he could tell you how much it cost and what a waste it was. This, this Judas who constantly stole money from the disciples and from Jesus and had his fingers in the till. See, Jesus, uh, Judas was with Jesus close for three years, and at the same time he was so far away from him and yet Jesus doesn't stop loving him. Even in this moment, I think it's a, it's a moment of deep love and pursuit of, of Jesus. See, when Jesus cleaned his disciples' feet, he also cleaned Judas' feet. And everything he did for his disciples, he did for Judas as well. And even at this moment of this meal, Jesus has... Uh, organized the seating arrangement such that Judas is right next to him in the seat of honor. And as they were lying together, reclined, resting on their elbows in a sort of circular table, Jesus' head would have been inches away from Judas's heart. It's like he's saying to Judas, Judas, just look at me, whisper in my ear, say the word and I'll forgive you. No one else has to hear this moment. No one else has to know where you're right here, my friend. Here's my friendship. Here's my love. Take it. Nothing was going to get in the way of the cross. Just, just remember that. Jesus was still going to die. And Judas could have remained one of the twelve. And yet in Scripture, we know it's prophesied that Jesus was going to get betrayed because God knows the heart of people. And he is sovereign, he knows everything, but still the heart of Jesus is here that he's pursuing Judas and saying, come to me. I think this was a genuine offer of friendship. There's even more in the passage that uh, John's account of this tells us that Jesus uh, dipped the bread in a bowl that they would share and he gave it to Judas. That, in the day, in the context, in the culture, that was a sign of friendship. And so even though Jesus knows the betrayal is coming, he's saying, my friend, I'm for you. Reach out to me. Here's my grace. Receive it. I think an important question for us today as we think about this story and put ourselves in it is to ask ourselves this. Who, who would we be in this story? And you might be uh, considering Jesus this morning or just starting out your journey. I'd, I'd love to encourage you that Jesus is reaching out to you just like he did in this story. If you're Christian, I think we might be a bit too tempted at times to think we would be more like the other 11 disciples. But We've all been Judas, haven't we? We've all betrayed Jesus. Even 
even today, even day by day, our hearts are prone to wonder and all our uh, pursuit of other things and how our hearts love everything else but God at times is a sort of a kind of betrayal of, of our love for God as well. And yet even in the midst of all of this, even in the midst of how Jesus knows we're going to reject him, betray him, deny him, like the disciples did, what does he do? He shows unbelievable faithfulness. Or Peter denied him, he restores him. And I think just for us, this is incredible grace for us this morning, that God's love is such that it is so, uh, so violent, so intense, so, um, so strong in winning us. When we've messed it up in our hearts again, when we've gone astray again, he still remains committed on his journey to the cross for all his friends. He still chooses forgiveness. He still continues to reach out his hand in love. And so you might be wondering this morning, as we spoke about just now, like what can Jesus do for me? What, what is this thing that he's promising to do? What will his death accomplish? What's, what is Jesus saying here? What is the promise? Let's look at verse 22, what Jesus says about the new covenant. He says, As they were eating, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is Poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After seeing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what is Jesus saying he's going to do for the disciples? What, what is he saying he can do for us? And if, you're, if you are Christian, what, what has Jesus already com- accomplished for you? What is he saying here? And that, that key phrase, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant sort of today, it might be like a contract. It's an agreement between two parties. And God gave several covenants to his people throughout the history in the Old Testament. Promises of his faithfulness to them. As he pledges himself to them and promises, I'm your God, you will be my people, I'm with you. What Jesus is saying here is that this is the new covenant. This is the last and perfect covenant. All other covenants point to this one. But this one is given as a perfect and last covenant and as a sign that I will do for you what you need the most. I will die for your sin in your place to rescue you and redeem you as, I, as my blood is poured out to rescue you. See, friends, it's all about the blood of the covenant. His blood rescues us. Just look at Ephesians 1, verse 7 and 8. It says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. 1 Peter 1, 18, 19 says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, 
but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. All this talk about blood, I know some of us might be squeamish. I've got some family who feel faint and fall apart when they think about blood, never mind see blood. You might be asking, asking yourself, well, what's the deal with blood? Like, why so much blood? If in the Bible, there just seems to be so much blood. What's going on? Like, is God bloodthirsty? What's the, what's the deal with this thing? And just as a side note, I'd say this. Whenever you see blood in the Bible, it's not because God loves hurting people. It's because you'll see that it, God loves saving people. There'll always be that in the mix. And that's exactly what's going on here and why it's so important. Now, I would say this. Why, why, is the, why is blood such a big deal? This would be why. Because blood illustrates better than anything else what the problem with sin is. Blood illustrates better than anything else what the problem with sin is. God wants us to see the link between sin and blood and death. And so you even in the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll see this. That when Israel sinned, they had to take an animal to the priest. The priest, uh, or they would slaughter the animal. The, the priest would take the blood and sort of wipe it on the altar. And then, and only then, their sin would be atoned for. And this is a picture of what sin does. Just as blood pours out of an animal leading to its death, so life pours out of us when we sin. There's a link between the spilling of blood and death. And this is a picture of what sin does in us. But there's a more important element to the sacrificial system, and, and here it is, is that once the animal had died on your behalf, you couldn't be punished anymore for your sin because it had been taken care of. There was something that died in your place. There was blood that had been spilt for you in your place so that your blood didn't have to be spilt. That is the gospel, my friends. His blood has been spilled for us once and for all so that you and I never have to be punished, so that you and I would never have to face the consequences of our sin. Jesus faced them for us on the cross, our perfect lamb. This is what he's accomplished for us. This is the new covenant. And so Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my, my, my blood. I'm, I'm entering into an unbreakable bond with you. If you trust in me, if you trust in my blood, will enter into my covenant and you will be my people for all time and I will be your God. And it will not be because of your works. It will not be because of how good you are. It will be simply because you've got the right documents to get you in, as it were. It's all about the blood. Are you covered in the blood of Jesus? And so what Jesus does in this moment is that he also gives us not just a new covenant, he gives us a new meal to remember the covenant. And so this, this moment of this Passover, there, uh, he's saying that this is my, my body is like this bread which is broken for you. This uh, blood is like this wine which is poured out for many. And so this uh, Passover has also been called the Last Supper because it's the Last Supper Jesus would eat before he dies. But really, this should be called the first supper. Because this moment right here, Jesus is giving his church a meal to continue practicing as we remember the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus, which has been given for us to save us. 
We call this communion. And some, just as an aside, some Christians ask, why don't we continue, why don't Christians continue to celebrate Passover? And I'd say this, it's because we celebrate a much better Passover every time we gather. We get to eat this meal as we remember the cross, the ultimate Passover. And it's not a bad thing to remember the Passover. It's a beautiful thing, but how much better is this communion meal as this, God gives us this gift to remember His body broken for us? This is what communion is all about. This is what communion is all about. We remember the body and the blood of Jesus given for us. And so just as we close, we're going to be looking at this and we're going to be taking communion this morning. But I just want us to read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and 24. And Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we're taking communion, and I'm just going to, this is, I'm going to keep this very simple. When we take communion, we're doing three things. We're remembering the grace of Jesus for us in the past, in the present, and in the future. We're looking back at the cross and we're saying, Jesus, thank you for what you accomplished for me right there. All my sin put on you. The death I should have died, you died for me in my place. Thank you, God, for that gift that I'm forgiven because you did that for me. Thank you, God. All my sin, all my sin that I've ever done, that I ever will do, has been covered in your blood on that cross. Thank you. Then we're remembering Jesus' grace for us today. That by His Spirit, He meets us in this moment. And in often unfelt and unseen ways, He strengthens our souls. He reminds us whose we are when we eat this body and this blood. He unites us and, and, and like strengthens that bond. As I said, often in an unseen way, but He's nourishing our bodies as we celebrate this thing. We're also looking forward. And we, we often forget this element of communion, but we're looking forward. When we eat this meal, we're looking forward of, at the feast that we will one day have in heaven with our King. That's what this meal is. Right? It's just a starter. The main course is still coming. And we look forward to knowing until Jesus comes again, he will come again. We will be with him for eternity as his people. And we're going to eat this for all time. And so friends, what would I say this morning to us? I would just say this as we respond again this morning if you're a believer or maybe for the first time or maybe you're just taking steps slowly towards Jesus and we know it's steps forward and steps back. But where is God leading us this morning as we consider his blood and body given for us. I would say this, to trust that this gift of grace to us is sufficient for all our life, for all eternity. 
the great Charles Spurgeon has a great quote. It's quite long, but it's very helpful. And we'll just end here and then we'll pray. He says this. This is our response. Great care must be taken that this faith is exercised upon Christ for a complete salvation, not for a part of it. Numbers of persons think that the Lord Jesus is available for the pardon of past sins, but they cannot trust him for their preservation in the future. They trust for years past, but not for years to come. Whereas no such subdivision of salvation is ever spoken of in Scripture as the work of Christ. Either he bore all our sins or none. And he either saves us once for all or not at all. His death can never be repeated and it must have made expiation for the future sin of believers or they are lost since no further atonement can be supposed and future sin is certain to be committed. Blessed be his name. By him all that believe are justified from all things. Salvation by grace is eternal salvation. Let's pray together, please. Jesus, thank you this morning again for the reminder of what you have accomplished for us as we trust in you. That there is no more um, providing or atoning for our own sin as if we ever could, that there is nothing left to earn, that there is no more performance to make you happy. All of our hope, all of who we are, all of our salvation, all of our forgiveness, all of our comfort in life and death rests in this work of Jesus for us on our behalf, that you really have died for our sin in our place. And this morning, all we want to do is this. We want to cry out and say, please, Lord, please forgive me for my sin again. Maybe we're praying that for the first time. But we want to believe that you are who you said you are and that you have done what you said you would do. That we are fully covered in your blood. That this new covenant is our hope. That it's all finished at the cross, at the work of Jesus. Pray this morning, God, that you would help us look back at the cross and remember your amazing grace given for us. I want to thank you for the gift of your spirit this morning uh, that just reminds us once again who we belong to. Just as you meet us, even in this moment, and nourish our souls and help us cry out to you once again. In this moment, we can say we are yours, God, and we can rest in that. And we do look forward to the day we will eat with you in heaven and have this feast, where there be such joy, God, where there is no more pain, where there is no more suffering, where there is just perfect and everlasting joy for all time. We know we can look forward to that because of what you've already accomplished in this new covenant, in the shedding of your blood, in the breaking of your body. I pray now as we just remember you in communion, that you would help us remember all these things, that you would cause our hearts much joy and worship as we thank you again for your great gift of mercy and grace to us.